This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. When reading the Bible, we have been conditioned to stop reading when a chapter concludes or a verse ends with a period. But these markings were not part of the original text. Michael Root explains how these subtle additions can change how we understand the Bible. Because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Shabbat Shalom Torah fans. Tonight on Shabbat Night Live, we are going to try an experiment. We're going to challenge you, in fact, to subconsciously remove all chapter and verse markings from your Bible. Let's just pretend there's nothing there. You know, read it like a book from beginning to end, and I guarantee you'll have a different conclusion about what it says. Michael Rood takes us through that scenario tonight on episode nine of Rightly Dividing the Truth. But first, let's say hello to my co-host, the social media director for Rood Awakening International, Chris Clark. Thanks, Scott. It's good to be here. Good to be. Good to have you. You know, it's your first time you've been on Shabbat Night Live, and we want to welcome you, and we want to talk about all things uh, social media. Uh, for example, you know, th there's a lot going on with censorship. I don't think that's any secret. Everybody knows that. You know, everybody who's trying to put the truth out there, even with their personal pages on Facebook, they've been shut down one time or another, and I'm, I'm certainly you've encountered that a lot. And so we want to thank you, first of all, for, you know, finding the ways around that and always fixing things. And when Facebook shuts us down, you bring us back up, and so thank you very much for that. So That's my pleasure. So first of all, what, uh, you know, why, why is, what's with all the censorship, I and mean, why are we being censored right now? What, what do you think is behind this? Well, it could be an agenda. Uh, I mean, it seems most of the social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, even Google, mm -hmm. with Google searches and YouTube, uh, conservative views are not welcome anymore, it seems. So, yeah. so a lot of the people have been leaving those main platforms to go where they will get banned or censored. So now that's a good question. So if people are new to Michael Root on social media, where can, you know, are we still on those platforms and what are we doing to combat that? I mean, first of all, where can people find us uh, with the conventional platforms? Well, the, the, we're still on the conventional platforms. Uh, Michael has a Facebook page uh, and he has several fa Facebook pages and groups. He's on Twitter, he's on Instagram, he's on Pinterest, he's on LinkedIn. And we've added some new platforms to, for a total of 12. Oh, wow. So I've been trying to track down where the people are going after they get censored on Facebook or they just get tired of it and get, mm -hmm. or get banned. So we've set up uh, some other platforms where people can find Michael Root if they're no longer on Facebook, Twitter, those platforms. Gotcha. Okay. Now, we, I know that there's, it's under either a Root Awakening or Michael Root. So uh, let's just go through them. So uh, Facebook, what do right. we look for on Facebook to, to find, you know, generally where our, our main page our is? Our main page where we post everything is facebook.com forward slash michael.j.root. Michael J. Root. Okay. And we also have a, the web team set up a, a community page on the website where they can find all the social media platforms. Oh, tell us about that. Okay, so what, what's what's that all about? Well, we we just, after adding all these platforms, it's hard to get the information out to people to tell them where to find us. Because right. we've been there, but some people don't know those platforms exist. Okay. Some people might be there, but they don't know Michael's on those platforms. So 
we just made a, a social media page on the website, the Microrood or the AroodAwakening.tv website, that uh, gives a link for each platform, so people can follow Microrood. Oh, so it's on all there on one page. Platforms. Yes. Oh, okay, good. And I believe that's a, a RoodAwakening.tv slash uh, social media. It's at the bottom of your page there. You can see it there. All right. So very good. So if people want to find us on Facebook, that's where they go. Now, if they're searching for Michael on YouTube, which incidentally, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that the most popular way people find us? It is. Uh, people find us, because we, even on social media, we're promoting our YouTube videos for Michael's uh, YouTube channel, which is A Root Awakening. YouTube.tv slash A Root Awakening. I'm okay. sorry. YouTube.com slash A Root Awakening. <laughs> a Root Awakening. So we're looking for Michael Rood on Facebook and A Root Awakening on YouTube. Right. Okay, got it. And we, we also have an A Root Awakening Facebook page on Facebook for people who are looking for A Root Awakening. So okay. we can channel people in to get to the right place. I gotcha. Okay, very good. Now, Twitter. What are we doing with Twitter? Because I know Twitter is, you know, Twitter is Twitter. So. Yeah. <laughs> Twitter, <laughs> we're, we there? We're, we're sharing the same posts on Twitter uh, that we share on the other social media. We have a Michael J. Rude, where well, we have a Michael Rude Twitter account. It's mm -hmm. one of the oldest accounts that Michael has. So before we started putting the J in there to get them all synchronized, uh, that the account was available. It was, we were locked out of it for a while, a long time, mm -hmm. but we finally got it back. And we also have an Arood Awakening account on Twitter. Okay. So, now you mentioned some alternative. Um, I, I know we had mentioned before the cameras came on. We were talking about uh, Rumble and uh, Telegram as another one. Uh, mm -hmm. Now we're not necessarily on all of these. So can you tell us which ones we are on uh, right now, other than the Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, and Instagram? Where where are we other than those main ones? I'll try to remember them. Okay. All. <laughs> at least at least some of them. <laughs> Rumble is an alternative video platform. So a lot of the conservatives out there that are getting banned from YouTube are going to Rumble. Okay. And some other video platforms. So, but we're not on that one yet. Because okay. we're still good on YouTube. We haven't been banned or censored. Good. At least badly <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> okay. All right, well, so there's a little bit about social media. So uh, tonight, speaking of which, uh, we're gonna see on social media, you'll be able to see Spiritual Food. This is episode nine of Michael Rood's famous series, uh, Rightly Dividing the Truth, and here's what you'll see tonight. The name Jesus was unknown and unpronounced until Western readers began mispronouncing the letter J because there is no J sound in Hebrew. When they pronounce the letter J as a consonant, J is in jelly, then it twisted the pronunciation from Hebrew, which is yah, and that is how it is to be pronounced. Whenever you see the letter J in your English version of the Bible, if you'll pronounce it as a hard Y, then you will be very close to being accurate. We say that the vowels in English are A, E, I, O, U, and sometimes Y. Why sometimes Y? Sometimes Y is used as a vowel, as jelly, the Y on the end, E on the end, or as a consonant, yellow. So it could be either vowel or consonant, but J was inserted into the English alphabet right after the letter I, because I is a vowel, it is a short I sound, but J is the consonant, Y, Y. And so now you've got a simple key of how to pronounce names and words in the Bible and understand that the name Jesus didn't even exist until people began mispronouncing the letter J. Furthermore, paragraphs were added to the Bible, but the paragraph markings stop at Acts 20, verse 36, and were never completed. I'm sure that if the Holy Spirit were responsible for putting the, the uh, 
paragraph markings that would have gone all the way through the Bible. But chapter, verse, paragraph markings, marginal notes, and when they associate other scriptures to the scriptures you're reading, such as in your center references, they are all void of any divine authority. Any and all errors concerning these artificially introduced artifacts cannot be blamed on either the Holy Spirit or upon the writers of the original document. These inventions, chapters and verses and paragraphs, they're fine for reference, but they can confuse the context and they can dull the mind. All right, so there is what we're gonna see tonight uh, from Michael, a little, little bit of the truth there. And also this weekend marks the fourth and final Shabbat in the third biblical month, also known as Savan on the astronomically and agricultural biblical <laughs> corrected biblical Hebrew calendar. Uh, and here we have right there on your screen. And uh, you know, actually, Chris, uh, we actually have a new Chinese calendar. And uh, Annalil Mora, who is in charge of all things international with the, uh, with the ministry, is gonna be talking about uh, that for us uh, next week, I believe, or the week after that. She'll be, she'll be coming in and telling us a little bit about the Chinese calendar. And so uh, that is a very exciting thing that's happening with us as well. And also, before we go, we have a new love gift. Uh, it's the sign of the Son of Man. This is with Joel Richardson. Uh, you're also gonna get a hand-painted ceramic kiddush cup and a work of art featuring uh, Pray for the Peace of Jerusalem. This is a wonderful piece of art that you'll be getting with this month's love gift, and we'll have details on that in just a second. But first, when reading the Bible, we have been conditioned to stop reading when a chapter concludes or a verse ends with a period, but these markings were not part of the original text. Michael Root explains what happened tonight. We'll be right back with episode nine of Rightly Dividing the Truth. Stay with us. New Testament believers look forward to the second coming while Jews look forward to their first Messiah. With such different expectations, will both groups recognize him when he comes? They know without a question that this is not only the Messiah that the Christians and the Messianic Jews have been talking about, but they also recognize that it is Yehovah God Almighty, their God. In The Sign of the Son of Man, Joel Richardson guides you through the Bible to weave a tapestry of clues that point to Yeshua as both the man resurrected and Yehovah who descends in a cloud. But the only way to watch it is to receive it as our gift. Donate a $50 love gift and we'll send you The Sign of the Son of Man with Joel Richardson on DVD or Blu-ray. Or for a donation of $100, we'll send you the sign of the Son of Man, plus a hand-painted ceramic kiddush cup with creator of the fruit of the vine in Hebrew. Or as a special offer for a donation of $300, we'll send you the sign of the Son of Man, the hand-painted ceramic kiddush cup, and a beautiful work of art with the Hebrew phrase, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. These are special gifts from Michael Rood, to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Remember, this offer ends June 30th and supplies are limited. Call now to receive your gifts, 888-766-3610. That's 888-766-3610. Or get your gifts online at monthlylovegift.com. 
When Yeshua fed the 5,000 with 11 barley loaves in the Galilee, the Pharisees came down on him because they accused him that he and his disciples did not wash their hands before they ate bread. They did not wash their hands with a negel vesser and say this prayer, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us by your commandments, commanding us concerning the washing of hands. Why didn't Yeshua do that? Why didn't his disciples follow that? Because it is takanot. It is a law which they invented, and Moses said no one is ever allowed to add to or subtract from. But the night of the Last Supper, Yeshua took bread and he put in place a rehearsal that was really put in place by the Kohen Gadol, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek himself brought forth bread and wine to Abraham and Yeshua interpreted that very thing. Baruch atah Yehovah Elohinu melech ha'olam hamotzi lechem miharetz. This is what Yeshua put in place, that before we eat bread, that we say this prayer, and as often as we do this, we do it in remembrance of him, because his broken body was broken for us, and by his stripes we were healed. So as often as we do this, as often we do it in remembrance of him. And Yeshua took the cup, and he said, Baruch atah Yehovah Ray pre Hagafen. The creator of the fruit of the vine, Yehovah, created the fruit of the vine. He said, This represents the renewed covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this. Remember me. And remember, I will be drinking this with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Shabbat Shalom. I will praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Of all of his marvelous creation, the word of the Almighty is his greatest treasure, is the pinnacle of his gift to mankind. Thousands in past generations have understood the value of his word and they've understood to the extent that they have bled and died in the endeavor to get that revelation in your hands in a language that you can understand. We are standing on the shoulders of giants who have gone on before us. Let us not squander our inheritance, an inheritance that was passed down in blood and tears. Jeremiah, in chapter 15, in verse 16 we read, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by thy name, O Yehovah Tsevaot. May you find joy in discovering the depth of the greatest treasure on planet Earth. Don't worry about the extras on the set whose names will never appear in the credits, the Book of Light. 
You, like Jeremiah, have been called by the name of Yahovah Zavot to be a star, to shine forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And that is why Shaul said to Timothy, study, be diligent to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly divide the truth. Why study? Or why, as it says in the Greek, spudazo, why be diligent? Why would one desire to expend the energy to demonstrate that their workmanship is approved before the creator of the heavens and the earth? What possible benefit could be derived by seeking the approval of a supreme being that most of mankind doesn't even believe exist? I am occasionally subjected to the argument of fools who insist that Jesus never really existed that he was a made-up person and that all of his miracles were fiction. They never happened. Well, to that, I kindly respond, there's no proof that you exist outside of your own sick mind. You may be imagining your whole life from within a drug-induced coma inside an insane asylum. You cannot prove to me or anyone else that you exist. Reality is fragile. It is empirically unprovable. But if there is a real physical universe, it is obviously the masterwork of a being far beyond our comprehension. We cannot even explain what consciousness is. Philosophers attempt to explain the physical universe in mathematical terms or in the realm of quantum physics, but none of them can explain what life is. And with all of the intelligence mankind can muster, once life has gone out of a living being, they cannot even reestablish that one simple unseen life force. All the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put the life force back into the egg who fell off a wall. No one has ever seen that life force. We can only assume that it is there because the body is animated when it is present and it rapidly decays when it is not. Attempting to explain life without an intelligent designer is the most elaborate joke ever played on the human race. You have to be dumber than the rock from which you evolved to believe that this whole thing just happened to come into existence without there being a creator after millions and millions of years of aberrant chance mutations out of complete nothingness in a purely mechanical universe. Yeah, right. I agree with you. You are an idiot. But back to the proposed non-existence of Jesus for a moment. If the rabbis in Israel today could simply say that there is no evidence that Jesus ever existed, it would save them a lot of grief, but they can't. Yeshua is the most documented person who ever walked the face of the earth. His miracles were a sign from heaven that he had the divine authority to repeatedly, vehemently violate the man-made rules of rabbinic Phariseeism in the first century. What he did to the religious establishment of his day is so clearly documented that the rabbis made a ruling that anyone who reads the words of Yeshu, which is their acronym for may his name be blotted out, Anyone who reads his words will have no place in the world to come. Yeshua is the antithesis of every man-made religion on the planet, including the religions that use his name to sell their propaganda. 
Those who suggest that Yeshua didn't exist are self-deluded fools. And those who repeat their folly are what the Holy Scriptures call morons. Of course, you can always see that epithet in the Greek text of Matthew, but it is attributed to Yeshua nonetheless. I can respect the rabbis who continue to attempt to preserve their man-made religion because they have to be very inventive to steer their flock away from Yeshua's message. They know that they cannot just pretend he never existed. Their people are far too smart, okay? You don't end up with the vast majority of Nobel Prizes by hiding your head in the sand. Those who know the legal intricacies of modern-day Orthodox Judaism, which is ancient Phariseeism, they understand what Yeshua is doing when he defiled their ceremonial stone water pots by producing wine in them during a wedding in Cana. They understand the ramifications of Yeshua commanding the man who was lame for 38 years to pick up his bamboo mat and break the law of the Pharisees, the law of the Aruv, in front of thousands of Pharisees gathered for the Feast of Shavuot. They understand the audacity of Yeshua breaking the invented law, forbidding putting saliva on one's eyes on the Sabbath day, and then Yeshua commanding the blind to walk more than a Sabbath day's journey to wash his eyes of the mud that he had just plastered on his eyelids. The Jews understand these things, and they can't just pretend that it didn't happen. When Gentiles read these records, they have no idea of what Yeshua was doing. No concept of what he was teaching everyone by his willful breaking of the Takanot, the man-made laws of the Pharisees that they had added or subtracted from the, from the Torah. Everything Yeshua did, every time he said, follow me, was to illustrate one of the most profound realities in this conscious physical universe. As he said to his disciples in John chapter eight, verse 31, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If we continue to obey him, then we will know by experience the truth. And the truth will set us free from the manipulation, intimidation, and control of man-made religion. It is not Phariseeism that Yeshua set us free from. Phariseeism was just the dominant religion of his day, a religion that was close to the Torah, but then diverged into another kingdom altogether. The day Yeshua was crucified, he prayed for his disciples, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is, tr is truth. Thy word is truth. Thy word is reality. If we are to be sanctified, if we are to be set apart by the truth, we must study. We must be diligent to rightly divide the word of truth so that we can separate man-made commandments from the commandments of the Almighty. We must be diligent to obey everything that the prophet taught his disciples and what he taught his disciples to teach other disciples. We do not concern ourselves with showing ourselves approved by our man-made or to our man-made denominations. We only concern ourselves with living our lives in a way that we will not be ashamed when we stand 
before the judge of the universe. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Yeshua said that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Do you want to pretend Yeshua never existed? Go ahead, help yourself. He is the one sitting on the throne on judgment day. You can explain to him that he doesn't exist. Just before the angels toss your sorry carcass into the lake of fire. You talk like a big man today, but you'll be screaming like a scalded baby on the day of judgment. Explain to him that he doesn't exist. Try it. That'll be a real smart move. In Romans, Shaul said that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Messiah. Because it is written, as I live, saith Yahweh, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall make their confession to God. So then, he goes on, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So that is the truth. Deal with it. Deal with it now or deal with it on judgment day. Either way, you are going to have to deal with it because we are not just the result of millions of years of aberrant chance mutations. We are not just dust in the wind. From this day forward, we will be diligent to rally divide the word of truth so that we have the truth that sets us free from religion and the grace that empowers us to live a more abundant life. Truth is reality, it's not an opinion. Truth is absolute, it does not change. And in order to rightly divide the word of truth from the traditions, opinions, and religious fabrications men, in order to get back to the word which is exalted above even the name of the creator of the universe, there is one thing that we must realize when we go back to that foundational verse. Knowing this first, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. So if the scripture is not subject to one's own subjective interpretation, then there is either no interpretation available or we might as well just close the book and walk away. Or there's another alternative. The scripture must interpret itself and that is exactly what it does. The scripture has within itself the keys to its correct interpretation. That is why we're told to study, be diligent, to study the scriptures which are able to make one wise into salvation. Because if we study the scriptures, the scriptures have the keys within themselves. You can stand back a mile away and say, I don't understand the Bible. It was just made up. You can come up with any kind of falsehood that you want to. You can pretend that it's full of errors but it is only those who receive the love of the truth that go to this record, that go to the scriptures, that find that the Almighty has done something so incredible that it is the greatest thing of all of his creation, that it unfolds itself, that it interprets itself, so that there will be no errors or contradictions, because there are no errors and contradictions if we have the true word. All scriptures are God-breathed. And when the word was originally given to holy men of God who were moved by the Holy Spirit, there was no contradiction. There was no inconsistency. Whenever and wherever scriptures appear to contradict themselves, 
we have an error that must be resolved. In most cases, we simply do not understand what we read. That is the most common error. And it is on the part of the reader, not the scripture. We eisegesis, we read into the scripture our own error instead of exegesis, you know, bring out and find out what is there without our preconceived notions. The error is on the part of the reader, not the scripture. However, in many cases we discover that we do not have an accurate translation because of a fault in the translator's understanding of the language, the culture, or related scripture on the same topic. Sometimes there's an error that lies in the transmission of the text. Copyists make mistakes. The best texts of antiquity are the ones that have been painstakingly studied, compared to older text, and corrected when and where necessary. At the time of his discovery, the text of the prophet Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls predated the next oldest extent text by nearly a thousand years. Comparing those two texts nearly a millennium apart, there were very few discrepancies between these two texts. And between them were copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. There are very few discrepancies between these texts, but not one of these discrepancies changed the meaning of any passage. Most of these discrepancies were simply transposed letters, or a word that was missed, or a word that was repeated. Very common copyist mistakes. The integrity of the word of God to and through Isaiah remained intact. And that is why we have the word today, the word of Isaiah that said Israel would become a nation in one day. That Israel's leaders would do wickedly against God's covenant with Abraham. They would make a covenant with death and an agreement with hell that the Almighty would annul. And as I said, in the spring of 2000, I said, if we have accurately corrected the calendar for the Aviv, we will see violence erupt in Israel, annulling the covenant with death before sundown September 28th, and that is exactly the day that it transpired. It is the first time that we know of in modern history that a prophecy has been called on the very day, but it did not happen overnight. It was after more than 35 years of, the, of attempting to restore the ancient biblical calendar and to understand the Feast of the Lord as prophetic shadow pictures of good things to come. It is there that we find that the Almighty has told the end of time from the very beginning. See, most apparent contradictions are due to our understanding. Some are due to our particular translation, but no translation will be 100% accurate. So we must exert due diligence and go back to the original languages whenever there is an apparent contradiction. We are more concerned with truth than we are with convenient one translation acceptance. Oh, I would love to say that the original, the first edition of the 1611 King James Version in 1611, printed by Cambridge University Press, was absolutely 
airless. It was absolutely perfect. Every single word was the best possible way you could translate it. But then what about the next edition was printed later that year? How about the ones that were printed and revised in subsequent times? See, no translation is gonna be 100% correct. And we have got to put ourselves, involve ourselves as workmen to go back and to understand what did these words mean to the people to whom it was addressed, who received it at the time it was being transmitted. How does it apply to them and does it apply to us today? If we are to be an approved workman who rightly divides the word of truth from the traditions of man-made religion, there is one thing we must keep in the foremost part of our mind. No translation or version of the Bible may be properly called the God-breathed word. For the past 60 years, I've used the King James version of the English scriptures almost exclusively. My personal Bible is more than 40 years old. It's been rebound several times, it's been recovered. But this is not the King James translation. It's the King James version. Once a translation has been made from the original text, from the Hebrew or the Greek and the Greek, such as the interlinear Greek New Testament that I have here on my bookstand, then that word-for-word translation is then reworked for syntax in the target language. I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians, uh, I'll pick a verse here, uh, chapter two, verse 11. And therefore sends to them God in operation of error for thee to believe them the lie in order that may be judged all the not having believed the truth, but having had pleasure in unrighteousness. A little bit difficult, but this is a word for word translation. Now I'm going to read it from the King James Version because they take those same words, rework them according to syntax. And for this God, excuse me, and for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see that the King James Version compared to the translation varies a little bit here. The translation word for word is very difficult to have it make sense, but the translators then rework that word for word translation and then it becomes a version. And that is what we have in our hands today. This is the 1769 edition of the 1611 King James Version of the Bible with appropriate corrections that have been done uh, through periods of time. Uh, English language, the spelling has been standardized since then, and, and there are words that have changed 180 degrees from how the common usage was in 1611. Now, the oldest text of the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim, were found in the caves of Qumran in the Dead Sea Valley, and they date to around the year, the oldest ones, to around 250 before the common error. The oldest texts of the Gospels and epistles authentically date no later than the middle of the fifth century. Though many have strained their credibility in order to have bragging rights to the oldest extent text, 
the middle of the fifth century is the oldest that anything can be proved that actually exists to this day because there are no originals on the planet unless the hand-penned Torah of Moses is still resident within the Ark of the Covenant. That would be the exception. Otherwise, all we have are copies of copies, fragments of copies that have been preserved in various conditions. It was Roberta Stephanus that had access to several Greek manuscripts which he analyzed and then compiled into what he considered to be the most accurate available Greek text, compiled and copied them into a singular volume. This compiled Greek text became known as the Textus Receptus, and his last two versions were done in 1550 and 1551. Uh, Tischendorf, Tregellus, Alsford, Erasmus, Wordsworth, Shrivener, Elsevier, uh, Nessel, and Allend, they all produced compiled critical Greek text that they selected from much older and numerous libraries, and, uh, and some of these were compiled long after Stephanus completed his work, and there were so many more manuscripts that were available later on, and these manuscripts went back far earlier. There are approximately 5,000 Greek texts of the New Testament, or fragments, that are known to exist to this very day. They are readily researched using compiled comparative text, and this is what I have in my hands right here. This is the, the 27th uh, edition of the Greek-English New Testament, and this gives me access to about 5,000 manuscripts. Any variation significant with any of these 5,000 manuscripts are noted here, and then I can go and I can find exactly where these manuscripts are. They can be studied on microfilm if one needs to go into that kind of detail, but this is what we have. This is what is available to us today, and this is part of our research into the scripture, to go back into the original languages and to see if there are apparent contradictions. We can take a look at the originals. We can take a look at other manuscripts that are older than what were even available at the time of Stephen's and what became known as the Textus Receptus, and we can go back and see that there are answers to things that cannot be solved in any modern version of the Bible, including the King James. We're gonna get into some of these details and show that some of these, these uh, errors are just because of translation errors because the translator didn't understand the scriptures from which Shaul, for instance, was quoting because Shaul constantly quotes the Torah and the prophets. And if you don't know where he's quoting from, you can make some pretty bad errors in it. But again, we are going to find the truth in everything that we do. Now, there were no chapter markings in the Bible in 1250 of the Common Era. Verses were not added until 1550, and they first appeared in the 1560 Geneva Bible. The letter J first appeared in the 1530 Geneva Bible and was pronounced then as it is today in much of Europe as a hard Y, such as in Yugoslavia, which is spelled with a J, 
Yugoslavia. The name Jesus was unknown and unpronounced until Western readers began mispronouncing the letter J because there is no J sound in Hebrew. When they pronounce the letter J as a consonant, J is in jelly, then it twisted the pronunciation from Hebrew, which is Y, and that is how it is to be pronounced. Whenever you see the letter J in your English version of the Bible, if you'll pronounce it as a hard Y, then you will be very close to being accurate. We say that the vowels in English are A, E, I, O, U, and sometimes Y. Why sometimes Y? Sometimes Y is used as a vowel, as jelly, the Y on the end, E on the end, or as a consonant, yellow. So it could be either vowel or consonant, but J was inserted into the English alphabet right after the letter I, because I is a vowel, it is a short I sound, but J is the consonant Y, Y. And so now you've got a simple key of how to pronounce names and words in the Bible and understand that the name Jesus didn't even exist until people began mispronouncing the letter J. Furthermore, paragraphs were added to the Bible, but the paragraph markings stop at Acts 20, verse 36, and were never completed. I'm sure that if the Holy Spirit were responsible for putting the, the uh, paragraph markings, that would have gone all the way through the Bible. But chapter, verse, paragraph markings, marginal notes, and when they associate other scriptures to the scriptures you're reading, such as in your center references, they are all void of any divine authority. Any and all errors concerning these artificially introduced artifacts cannot be blamed on either the Holy Spirit or upon the writers of the original document. These inventions, chapters and verses and paragraphs, they're fine for reference, but they can confuse the context and they can dull the mind. Let's go into a couple of examples here. Genesis, Genesis chapter one. This is, this is in the beginning, in the beginning. Genesis chapter one and verse 31. We begin reading, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. In the evening and the morning was the sixth day. And now we have a chapter marking. Wait, wait, let's, let's just finish the week out before we start a new chapter. Remember, this chapter marking was added by man. Here we are the sixth day, the morning and evening were the sixth day, then the next verse, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, thus, at the end of the sixth day, thus the, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made. He rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day, he sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now add a chapter marking. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh Elohim made the earth and the heavens. Now we start a complete new thought in here. See, if, if we allow these chapters to just stop us where we are, so many times we 
do not complete the thought or our thought is interrupted right in the middle of us. Let's take a look at John chapter two. Here, here we have the context and timing of Yeshua's discourse with Nicodemus, okay? John chapter two, verse 32. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, Yeshua was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles that he did. Okay, so now we've got the timing. He's in Jerusalem for the Passover. It is in the feast day that the people saw the miracles that he did. And then it says, but Yeshua, Jesus, did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any man should testify, that any should testify man, for he knew what was in man. Now we've got a chapter marking that is in the wrong place. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, the same came to Yeshua by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that comes from God, for no man that can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. Wait just a minute. What has happened here, because we put a, a chapter marking in the wrong place, it should have been done right at the, at the beginning. Start chapter three, right at verse 23. Yeshua was in Jerusalem at the Passover. It's on the feast day. Now, that particular year in which this transpired, the Passover lambs were sacrificed on a Friday. This is the year 27 of the Common Era. When the sun sets, it is now the not only the weekly Sabbath, but it's also the high Sabbath, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is on this feast day, Yeshua is doing miracles in Jerusalem in the temple. Now, Nicodemus comes to him at night. It is sunset after the, after the high Sabbath and after the weekly Sabbath. What is the day, ladies and gentlemen? It is Yom HaBikarim. It is the day of first fruits. This is the day that Nicodemus, who becomes the first believer from the Sanhedrin, he is the first fruits from among the Pharisee-controlled Sanhedrin that becomes a follower of Yeshua this very night. He is the first fruits. Now we have the entire, entire context. See, by adding a verse, a chapter in the wrong place here, because it's all added by man, and it was added by men that did not understand the biblical reckoning of time, did not understand the feast of the Lord and the timing of the feast of the Lord. It was done by Gentiles. And as I say, let the Jews interpret the scriptures the Jews have written, and I'll leave plenty of time at the end of our series for the Gentiles to interpret all the scriptures they wrote. Three seconds is more than enough time. By adding the chapter in the wrong place, we are thrown off. We do not realize that the significance is that Nicodemus is coming to Yeshua at the time of Yom HaBikarim, the day of the first fruits, and he is the first fruits. And why is it that uh, he didn't need anyone to testify of man? He knew it was in man. That's why he responded to Nicodemus immediately and said, Verily I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He launches off on something that immediately, you know, Nicodemus had no idea where he was, where he was coming from. He said, uh, uh, how can this thing be? What, what are you talking about? And Yeshua led him right down the trail because Yeshua already knew what was in man. Why? Because it says it in the previous 
chapter, which shouldn't have been the previous chapter. It was just the previous sentence until someone added chapter markings here. Let's go to John chapter seven. We're gonna see another place where there's a chapter right in the middle of the sentence. Instead of a comma, they put an entire chapter. This is John chapter seven, verse 53. It says that every man went unto his own house, put a comma. Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you wanna add a chapter, go ahead. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. That all makes sense. There it is. It's perfect. Now, let's step away from chapter markings, which are all devoid of authority, which sometimes completely stop us when we ought to keep reading. Sometimes it it divides the context to where we, we lose all track of time and cannot put together the chronology of events because there happens to be an artificial chapter there. Now we're going to take a look at punctuation. Not only are chapters, verses, and paragraph markings added to the original scriptures and void of any authority for interpretation, and sometimes get in the way of proper interpretation, so any punctuation that is in the scriptures, in the English version of the Bible, is an interpretation according to the understanding of the translator. And it depends on the theology of the translator how it's going to be translated and how the punctuation is going to go. A case in point is found in Luke chapter 23. And in verse 43 of the King James Version, we read, and it is punctuated thusly, Jesus said unto him, speaking of the malefactor hanging on the cross with them, verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's one translation. Other translations say it this way. Jesus said unto him, the malefactor, Verily I say unto thee today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. See the difference? One says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The other one says, I say to thee today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Your theology is going to determine where you put the comma in this verse. So first, in order to rightly divide the word, we must ask the question, where was Yeshua that very day? Was he in the grave for three days and three nights as he prophesied, or was he in paradise? Another question we could ask, where is paradise? Because it was originally in the Garden of Eden. Garden, in the Greek Septuagint, is paradoso, is the paradise of Eden. That is where paradise was originally, and Adam was ejected from paradise after his act of disobedience to the instructions of the Almighty. So where does paradise appear next in the scriptures? We have to go all the way to the book of Revelation. From Genesis, where paradise is interrupted and we are ejected from paradise, to Revelation 2.7, here is a promise that Yeshua makes, and this is to one of the assemblies 
in Asia. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So, we ask the question, where is the tree of life? The one which was in the original garden of paradise. We go all the way to the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, and this is speaking of being in the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven onto the new earth. And this is where it says in verse two, in the midst of the street of Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem, and on either side of the river, there, were, there, there was the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruit and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nation. So where do we see the tree of life? It is in paradise, but where is the tree of life and where is this paradise? It is on the new heaven and new earth. It is in paradise restored. That from which we were ejected from in the garden has now been restored and, as it says in the 14th verse of Revelation 22, blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to eat of the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. See, paradise is a place on earth. It does not exist at this time. It will be restored. And Yeshua told the malefactor that he will be with him in that new city, on the new earth, in the paradise that is restored for all of God's people to enjoy. So how should this verse be Punctuated here, Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto you today, when it looks like there is no hope, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Yeshua is in the grave for the next three days and three nights. He was raised on the third day. Yeshua was not in paradise. Paradise does not exist. Paradise exist on the new heaven and the new earth in New Jerusalem, which Yeshua is preparing. He said he's going to go away and prepare a place for us in his father's house where there are many apartments. And that apartment building appears to be 1,800 miles in each direction and 1,800 miles up, a city of gold, and it is in that city that we enjoy paradise and the tree of life forever and ever and ever. <music> 